We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves will disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. So welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I am Emma Waddington and I am your co-host today with Chris McCurry. And we are delighted to have Yael Shomran here with us today. Hello, Yael. Hi, it's so nice to be here. I'm I'm honored to get to chat with you on your awesome podcast, whose title I love. Oh, thank you. It's our great pleasure to have you here. Yes, really, really fun to have you. So Yal is an assistant professor at Brown University. She's a psychologist specializing in relationships. She's also the co-host of the fabulous Psychologist Off the Clock podcast and a writer. And today we are particularly excited to have read her book, Work Parent Drive, that was published in November 2022. And today we'd love to talk a bit about one of Life's Dirty Little Secrets, which is very true for me, which is around the tension between being a parent and working, really. And so I'd love to start with why you chose to write this book. What was it that felt so important? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, everybody always talks about writing the book that they wish they had available to read when they, you know, went through a particular impasse in life. And for me, it was becoming a working parent. So, you know, it's sort of um, like an embarrassment of riches because I had a job that I loved. I had a healthy pregnancy. I was super excited to become a parent. I wasn't actually that concerned because I had supportive colleagues and a supportive partner. And I thought, you know, I have this in the bag. I'm a psychologist, you know, for goodness sakes, I, I can figure out this working parent thing. And, you know, surprise, surprise, it was much, much harder than I anticipated. But because I'm a psychologist and because I specialize in relationships and also because I'm really enamored with positive psychology, the science of happiness, I think I had a really different lens on why I was so unhappy when I became a working parent. And, you know, I was really looking for something specific in the bookstores that I couldn't find that spoke to the psychological tension that I was experiencing and that had sort of an optimistic flavor to it. Instead, all I found were really disheartening books that said, you know, the policy is inhumane and inappropriate and, you know, marriages are unequal and workplaces are inflexible. And all of that might be true, but for me, it really missed this psychological piece and didn't have this element of optimism that I was really yearning for. And so when I didn't find what I was looking for in the bookstores and the libraries, I I decided to pursue the academic literature as nerdy people like me are wont to do. And what I found there actually did suit what I was looking for, which is an entire body of work looking at this construct called work-family enrichment that hopefully we'll talk a bit about today which is basically the, the sister of work-family conflict, right? So work-family conflict is true. We know that you know, from our personal experience, and we also know that from science, that when we have feet in lots of different demanding roles, there is tension between them. They compete for finite resources. 
And at the same time, what science says is that our roles can help each other out, whatever they may be, you know, whether you're a parent or the child of an aging parent or a friend or an employee or a pet owner, all of your roles compete with each other and they also feed each other. And through knowing bits of social science from creativity science to rest science to the science of happiness, we can actually find ways to manage the tension more skillfully and amplify the enrichment more strategically. And so for me, this book, which takes a psychological lens and looks at the complex relationship between roles, because again, my history is as a relationship person, I look at everything from a relational lens. So it's sort of a a combination of looking at our roles as being in relation to one another, looking at the positive psychology of it, and trying to figure out using tools from social science how to navigate lives that encompass lots of demanding roles more skillfully. Yeah, I love that. And I was thinking, actually, you know, it it really is a book that hasn't been written before. And it really was a book that I needed, too. And I, you know, I'm so delighted you've written it and that I got hold of it. And I was thinking about, you know, I think one of the things that struck me as a working parent is this conflict between roles, because to to an extent, I was reading that the word parenting kind of is relatively new the word itself, parenting, and how it's kind of become a job. You know, once upon a time, we just, if I think of what my parents probably thought of parenting, they thought they were parents, whilst we now have it a job. And so that makes it even more of a conflict. Like we've got this job, which is parenting, and then we have our full-time job as well. And those kind of expectations that are quite high on both ends nowadays that sort of add to this tension. Which, which is why I think, you know, this desire to be good at both, almost, you know, before your book, we were, it felt like the impossibility. You can't be. You've just got to give up that, yeah. that dream. And thinking, so when I, the, the kind of thing that I love the most about this tension that you described is more than the tension ex- exactly, is that they can be complementary. And that having these two roles can actually make you happier. Reading about that, I I thought, yes, that just was so validating to me that actually being a working parent can make me a better parent. It's something I'd never thought of. I didn't think it would compliment me in any way. And yet since reading your book, I've been noticing it more and more. Like you described lots of examples of how, you know, being able to manage my children's conflicts, quite literally... <laughs> is helping me, you know, manage conflicts at work and vice versa. Actually being able to, I think the thing that, you know, I've been noticing the most is this fabulous description that you give in the book around pivoting. Perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about how they complement each other. And then we could talk about the pivoting as well. Yeah, well, I'm I'm so appreciative of of what you're how you're describing my book and the impact that it's had on you because my my greatest hope is that people will read this and have this kind of a mindset shift where, you know, the the dominant public conversation really is about the way that our roles conflict with each other and it feels like this problem that needs to be solved except nobody can solve it, and I think what I'm hoping to help people do is really shift from a work family conflict mindset to a work family enrichment mindset. And I don't mean that to suggest that we don't have conflict between our roles, because that's inevitable, but that we change the frame around which we understand what it means to have tension exist between our roles. 
And in a sense, it's sort of like switching from an outside-in mentality of like solving something like you would solve a machine to an inside-out mentality, like you would solve a psychological problem, which is not to say like, okay, once we've solved sadness, we'll never feel sad anymore. Nobody thinks that that is possible. But we can change how we relate to the sadness. We can change how we understand it. We can change how we respond to it. We can change how we grow from it. We can change how we appreciate it. And I think that's the same thing that I'm hoping to leave people with as they really think about the way that our roles exist in relation with one another, that, you know, we're not aiming to never experience a difficult time on a day where we have a lot of demands on us as parents and as workers and as children of aging parents and as people who have passionate hobbies and as people who, you know, care to have a friendship circle. Like, that's hard. It's hard to have a role in lots of different demanding roles, but it's actually a beautiful thing. And they really can and do help each other out. But often, and this is kind of what you're saying, which was really my experience in interviewing people, is that we often don't even think about the way that our roles help each other out. But once we start to understand that they can, we start to notice it. We actually experience it a lot more. It's kind of happening just outside of our peripheral vision anyway. But by appreciating it and looking for it, we're a lot more likely to experience it. And this actually happened with a lot of the parents, working parents that I interviewed for the book. It wasn't intended this way, but it was almost like mini interventions that I was doing because I was looking, actively looking for how people's roles helped the roles out, how one role would help the other out. And afterwards, I had a lot of people contacting me and said, you know, I had never thought about it before you asked me, but now I'm seeing it everywhere. But I'll I'll just kind of articulate that there's three kind of general pathways that roles can enrich each other. So the first is the transfer effect. And that's the idea. And Emma, you had kind of described it. Like you step into parenting role and you're helping your kids sort out a conflict. And lo and behold, those conflict negotiation skills help in most workplaces. And in most workplaces, we're developing skills and learning new things, gaining perspectives, taking a break from parenting, which is quite demanding and exhausting. And as we're doing that, as we're doing our work, we're actually helping our parenting because the skills that we develop at work and the time away from parenting is actually quite helpful for parenting. We come back with new ideas and fresh perspectives and, and we've had a break. So that helps us parent better. So that's this, the transfer effect. The second pathway is the stress buffer effect. Now we know that in any role that we have, we're going to hit tough patches. As a parent, your kids go through exhausting or just, you know, painful developmental milestones. At work, there's periods where we're having a project or a client that is just really taking us down or a boss who's micromanaging us. And what's nice about having multiple roles is that regardless of how hard you're ha- how, how hard of a time you're having in a given role, you have an opportunity because you have pressure to step from one role into another to have a break from a difficult experience and hopefully have a more positive experience. And you can actually do it very deliberately. So for example, if you're feeling very lonely at work, when you go home as a parent, you can really deliberately look for opportunities to have a cuddle with your kid or connect with your partner about, about your day. Or if your kid is really giving you a hard time because they've entered their teenage years, you can go to work and have a positive experience with a coworker, a sense of mastery in a work task. The third pathway is is what I call the additive effect. And as psychologists know, there's lots of different ways to define happiness. You know, one is a sense of pleasure and gratification. You like eat something delicious or buy something new and you just feel good. That's a very important way to feel happiness, but it's very fleeting, right? We habituate to that kind of happiness very quickly. 
another kind of happiness that is more enduring is, is a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose in what we do. Now, it may not feel very good in the moment. So like if you're training for a marathon, it can feel very purposeful, but it doesn't necessarily feel good. Same thing goes for parenting. Same thing goes for hard work. But if we can access a sense of purpose, we get a more enduring experience of, of happiness, of, of satisfaction. And that's the kind of happiness that we're talking about. And when we have multiple demanding roles of life, we have much more opportunity to access a sense of purpose and meaning. And what's nice is you can almost like spread your existential eggs into lots of different baskets because as a parent, there may be a, a point at which, you know, we hope there's a point at which your kids go off into the world and launch as independent people. And there can be a sense of loss and emptiness. But if you have purpose that you've cultivated in other roles, whether it's work or hobbies or, or spiritual community, then you can sort of take the edge off loss in one or, or a phase of life where, where you don't have as much, you know, for example, some people don't feel much of a sense of purpose in their work and they can c sort of take the edge off that by having a sense of meaning through their family life. And they can even attach it. Like, I don't find inherent meaning in what I do for a living, but I find meaning in being able to support my family through the income that I receive by the work that I do. And so that sense of meaning and purpose, the additive effect of having lots of different places where you can extract that sense of purpose, you can help yourself access some of that enrichment. So again, the three pathways are the transfer effect, the stress buffer effect, and then the additive effect. So in a lot of ways, you're talking about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about what we're doing and why, and to create a narrative that is, is bigger and more supportive and helpful. Yeah, that's right. And I actually, I have a chapter on, on the narratives, on the stories we tell and, and how we can edit our stories. And, you know, as we know from psychology, the, the way that we craft stories has a huge impact on, on, and it's something that humans do. We're wired for storytelling. This is a part of what it means to be human. In fact, you know, there's this narrative researcher that I interviewed for the book and he had this great quote that, you know, spiders spin webs and humans tell stories because stories really matter. They help us develop a sense of understanding and coherence and they, they focus our attention on what's most important. But what's really cool about the human brain is that we can edit and we can choose where we point our attention to. And it's also helpful to remember that you know, we tell the story, but we're also kind of the narrator. So there's a lot of opportunity that we have to work with the stories that we tell and to craft meaning in ways that are helpful for us. And in acceptance and commitment therapy, which I know that you guys are very familiar with, you know, one of the things we think a lot about is how we relate to the story and whether it's workable for us. And the question of workability really has to do with, does the way that we tell the story help us to build a life and show up the life that we want to be living and show up as the kind of person that we most want to be. In the context of thinking about role tension, when we talk about how this working parent thing is just untenable and unsustainable and nobody can do it, or if we say, I'm a terrible working parent and scarring my kids for life, an important question to ask is, how much does that help us show up as the working parent that we most want to be? How much does that help us to be uh, nourishing the kind of life that we want to be building over time. And for a lot of people, it turns out that telling those really negative kind of fixed mindset, like nothing ever good is going to happen here, it turns out not to be very workable. It kind of causes us to be more stagnant. 
And so editing the story without losing contact with reality can be quite helpful. So for example, instead of saying, I'm the worst working parent in the world, saying, you know, I had a a working parent day that didn't go so well. You know, my kid is upset with me or I feel like I dropped the ball or I'm feeling a little hopeless. But there are things to learn here. There are ways to grow and there are opportunities to do it better or to find meaning in in what can't go better. I've often talked to parents about monitoring the language that they use. And when they get into the black and white, all or none, I'm the worst, my child will never, that's their cue that they've entered that space that is probably not very helpful and and there's, you know, not very psychologically flexible. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That all or nothing thinking and storytelling is really an important and helpful cue. Like, oops, okay. Like, you know, A, it's not accurate, right? As in cognitive therapy and and in acceptance and commitment therapy, you always sort of want to ask, like, how accurate is it? Sometimes it's really accurate, but it's not helpful. And so even more important is, is it helpful? Is it is it sort of helping to guide you toward the kind of life that you want to be living and the kind of person that you want to be? And also, as you're kind of pointing out, is it helping to model for our kids messages that we want them to be starting to articulate for themselves? I love that bit in the book where you talk about, you know, workability trumping accuracy and how important that is to keep remembering that actually, whether it's right or not, the most important part is is whether it's helping me or not in this moment, um, because we can get caught up in trying to figure out how accurate or how true it is. Like, you know, am I spending enough time with my kids or should I be spending more time with them? Will I be a better mom if I am, you know, going to that sports day or, you know, or should I stay at work? You know, all those questions. Sometimes we can get caught up in the fact and lose touch with really in that moment, right? It's, it's kind of that unfolding process. Any one moment can change, you know, what is the most important thing. Yeah. Which I think is, is really important to remember as a working parent. And so just coming back to, you know, as you, you, you were talking, I was thinking about this pivoting thing. Right. You Sorry. Described. You would ask that. Sorry. No, it's fabulous. And, and no, it's great. You did a great description. Thank you. And, you know, it's, it is so fascinating to really start to think about how our roles get enriched and how having, you know, you know, lots of eggs in our basket, you know, we're more likely to be happy if we've got lots of different roles. And, and, and I've really been thinking about that a lot lately because I've sometimes felt overstretched, but now I'm thinking actually all these different things like doing this podcast, Chris and I are, are working on a few books and I have a clinic and I have children, I have chickens, I have, you know, all these different pieces of my life that sometimes I think I'm, you know, going mad, <laughs> trying to juggle all of these. I also notice that actually there is joy in all of them, exactly like you said, and if any one moment you know, I'm not feeling so good about one area. There is another area I might be feeling okay about. And so that makes it quite, yeah, being mindful of that and the importance of that really helps. Yeah. Um, And just this pivoting idea I thought was fantastic because obviously, you know, in, in acceptance and commitment therapy, we, you know, we're thinking about our ability to be psychologically flexible. And so to be sort of when, when these stories show up or when big feelings show up, being able to 
be flexible enough to attend to what's really important in that moment. And it had never occurred to me that having multiple roles, like being, you know, a working parent or, you know, looking after your aging parents and working or being, you know, a pet owner or all these different pieces, the ability to pivot your attention from one to another is increasing our psychological flexibility. And that just blew my mind. I started thinking about that and I've been noticing it. And at the moment, it's, it's, I have a lot of stuff happening. And in those moments of thinking, I'm just a scatterbrain, I've been thinking, I'm working on my psychological flexibility. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I'm noticing my ability to flip from one thing. Got to put this down because really I have to put this down because I need to attend to this. And really what a skill, it really is a muscle. And that that makes me really better able to parent because you're absolutely right. You know, you talk about in the book, you know, dropping off from a call and going, I had a hysterical, you know, now through COVID, we've had all these stories of Zoom calls going funny. And I had a particularly interesting one, gosh, probably a couple of months ago where I was in the middle of a really important business call and I just left my daughter outside with a friend that actually I'd never met, but it was a little girl from down the road who turned up with her little, a little fluffy chicken and she left it in the garden. And I walked in from work kind of dashing in to get onto this call and I saw this little chicken. I was like, what's, what's happening? What's, what's this happened? Yeah, where's this come from? And I said, but generally oh, from an egg. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Good point. Not one of our eggs. <laughs> and then I saw this child that I didn't recognize. I'm like, oh, and who are you? And so my daughter said, this is so-and-so. Anyway, so I, I sort of walked past and I'm, I'm rushing for the, the call. I close the door. So my office is half playroom. So, but when the door, the rule is when the door is closed, you don't come in. And I start the call. And next thing you know, this little girl comes in with her chicken something's happened to the chicken. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's happened to your chicken. Please go and speak to someone else. I'm in the middle of the call and I sort of push her out. And then she comes back in. She's like, it's dead. I was like, oh my goodness, how did that happen? And so I had to end the call and attend to this dead chicken. And it turns out I was out hoping my dog, it was dead. Oh gosh, no, it was dead. I mean, the first time it came in, it was kind of shaking. I was thinking, "Oh, this is terrible. This doesn't look good." Go and find my husband, who was upstairs on another call. But the second time he came, it was dead, and my dog had gone for the chicken. Ugh. No, I know. But we have lots of chickens, but this didn't look. This one was fluffy and didn't look like one. So talk about pivoting attention. I had to drop the call. And turn to this child who's now grieving a chicken and, and turn to my daughter who was really upset with the dog who had, you know, I explained, you know, the dog didn't know it was a chicken, I suspect, and it's all going to be okay. But yeah, that ability in that example, quite a sort of, yeah, dramatic example of being able to switch from one thing to the next and then try and rescue the work call later. Yeah, right. 
that's a great example and seemingly random and seemingly not an enrichment example, except I bet if you scratch the surface, there was lots of enrichment that happened for your work, right? Because, you know, probably your colleagues saw that you were a real human, you know, with chickens running around that, you know, needed to switch your attention. And then you were able to sort of come back with a fresh perspective and an interesting story that connected you to them. I mean, these kinds of things are actually very connecting in the workspace because it brings your real authentic self in. And that is where people really find deep, authentic connection. But there, I mean, to, to back to the point of pivoting, I think it is a really good example where in like a moment you needed to go from like serious work call, like, you know, I'll talk to you later to like, oops, no, like we are reprioritizing what needs to be attended to. And I'm sorry, I have to end this call and go attend to the children and the poor little chicken and, you know, discipline that dog. Who, who doesn't know any better. But one of the things that I think is a common myth, I mean, a dirty little secret, if you will, is that those pivots from role to role are energy consumptive and that it's not a skill, it's just something you have to deal with. That's actually incorrect. They, they do take energy, but the more you practice it, the more facile you get, the more flexible you get. And the, the research on this is really interesting because it is true that we don't multitask very well, but we can get better at task switching, right? The more often we do it, the more skilled we get. It is a skill that we can build. I think there is this sort of dominant narrative in our culture that it's like something you just have to kind of grunt and grit your teeth through. And it's not. It's like something you can get better at through deliberate practice. And goodness knows, like if you have a life with lots of demanding roles, you have lots of opportunity to practice. In fact, the research that I love that is parallel to this is research on monolinguals versus uh, on lifetime bilinguals versus people who learn a second language later in life. And what we find is that people who are bilinguals throughout life are better at task switching in general because they've had to learn how to do it moment to moment, depending on who they're conversating with. And I think that just kind of gives a lot of hope that like we can all get better at doing this kind of task switching. And what's nice is it kind of fits in with other pockets of research that shows that when we take breaks from one role to step into another, then we're able to come back with some new things. I mean, whether it's new skills or having the opportunity to just get a break from whatever it is that you were working on or having a new story to share to connect with the people that you've had to you know, leave the call very quickly from that there are opportunities in the switching to be had. We, we tend to see interruptions as a negative. And again, this is a dirty little secret that interruptions are quite good for us. I mean, we do want to sort of stack enough minutes together, whether it's in parenting or work or elsewhere, that we can make some forward progress. But staying too long with a single task is actually not great. So those interruptions, even though they don't feel good in the moment, are quite beneficial. So I'm not sure that you're called, you know, benefited from you being interrupted inherently. The, the benefits weren't necessarily obvious, but there were some benefits that you could access and that you can access if you know, like, okay, here's, here's a way that I can make this work for me. And that's really where the enrichment mindset comes in handy. That's a really great example. I mean, the, the other nice thing about pivoting is that it doesn't require one situation to be fully resolved. Yeah, and uh, you know things don't have to change in order for things to change. 
And that's something Steve Hayes, the founder of Acceptance Commitment Therapy, used to say. We, we can't put our clients in the untenable position of having to change in order to change. That we have to start where we are. This is, you know, yeah. that's the acceptance piece that this is the situation now. I don't have to like it. And, you know, I can, I can pivot to, you know, a more productive, values-driven course of action without having to resolve this other stuff. Uh, in the moment, at least. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that the pivoting skill is, it's it's really, I mean, I'm calling it pivoting, but it really is psychological flexibility, which is just being able to make contact with the moment, whatever's happening, reconnect to your values, like who's the you that you want to be in a given moment, and then make a decision, behaviorally speaking, Given what's going on around you, given what's going on inside you, given what your values are, how do you want to show up in this moment? And as you're saying, Chris, you don't have to feel comfortable. You don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be something you would ever choose. But you can make a value-aligned choice moment to moment. And when you do it with that flexibility, that willingness to say, okay, now I have to hang up the call and go deal with the kids and the dead chicken, or now it's time to return to the call even though my child is still sad. If you do that with your values sort of in the driver's seat, then it really is an opportunity to pivot. And you can do that moment to moment. And it doesn't have to be a tragedy that you that you have to do this task switching a lot of times in a given hour. It can just be a part of, you know, that hour. That that's what was required in in that hour. And having some confidence that the more you practice it, the easier it gets, I think is is helping. Is helpful to really build some of that optimism as opposed to that sense of, oh God, do I, you know, this is going to be so exhausting for me. I mean, and there's a reality like, you know, doing a tremendous amount of task switching can take a toll after a time, but we can do a lot more of it than we give ourselves credit for. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up, but can you say more about think small and savor? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this is in the context of building resilience. Let me let me sort of back up a little bit. I think that, you know, when we encounter difficult phases of life, it can be really, really hard, right? And we can have a difficult time developing skills and mastery. And in line with the research on learned helplessness, which listeners might be familiar with, it, it can be a tall ask for somebody to say, you know, just pivot or, you know, try harder or don't give up or feel optimistic. Because the reality is if you've had a repeated experience of failure, like this hasn't gone well and I don't know what I'm doing, it can be very difficult, if not impossible, to have that sense of, you know, I, I got this and I can be resilient and I can keep trying. So what's important there is to really break things down small because in order to be building skills and in order to feel a sense of competency or mastery, you need to have small wins. But it can be important to, to sort of adjust your expectations in order to give yourself a small win. So in the hope of building a sense of resiliency so that you can keep going even when you have to do a lot of task switching, task switching or when you don't have a sense of competency, 
think small. So, you know, I have this section in the book where I talk about like examples, but it can be like, you know, rather than, for example, being the parent who works a full day and then gives your kid a healthy dinner, like, you know, did you give your kid a hug? You know, did they have dinner, even if it was Ritz crackers in front of the TV at night at work? You know, maybe skills are new. Maybe, you know, I'm actually doing a new work endeavor where I'm writing a newsletter and I feel incompetent all the time. And so I try to bring myself back to this is a new skill. So how can you sort of break it down into smaller tasks that you can have a sense of, of competency? And can you savor the moments of joy along the way, even if they're not the big ones? So, you know, if you had a moment of connection with your kids, even if the entire day wasn't a good one, can you savor that small thing? So in the context of building resilience, the more you can think small, set the bar a little bit lower to give yourself a win and savor the moments that did work well for you, the more you can build in that sense of optimism and hope that can help you to continue to build whatever skills or build towards whatever goals are important to you. Right. And that in and of itself is a skill to, you know, have the habit of thinking small, to have the habit of savoring. Because, um, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't often notice all the times that, you know, we might feel the joy or the accomplishment because we're moving on to the next thing. There's always something more to do. And uh, we can't just congratulate ourselves for having accomplished something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is like, maybe we can, maybe we can build that habit of, of really pausing to do that. I actually think that parenting is a really great place to do this, to sort of and, and to motivate by modeling it for your kids, right? Can you help your kids learn how to think small and savor? And can you do it together as a connecting activity? So, you know, when my kids have something real small, like, you know, we pause and we, we have a small celebration. And I think it's so fun and connecting and such a nice opportunity to really help them enjoy the process more. And it's sort of like you're you're celebrating really tiny outcomes and holding the bigger outcomes more lightly. Like you're celebrating that they worked hard, you know, regardless of what grade they got. You're celebrating that they tried, you know, even though they're not the best on the team, they tried to get a goal. You're celebrating that they, you know, enjoyed the soccer match, even if it was a really hot day. You're celebrating that they, you know, listened well to their teacher and, I think that celebrating those small things with them in a really explicit way helps them build the habit and helps you build the habit. And that's why I, I think there's so much in parenting that can help us do better in so many different ways, but in the way that we're talking about now to enjoy the process and hold the outcomes more lightly. I think I think of this is recalibrating your brain to notice these things when often they just sort of slip by. And and we yeah. can we can learn how to notice in in, in a way that's helpful and, and life promoting. Yeah, and I think that that's such a general truth that like we often let our attention sort of direct itself, but we can be more deliberate about where we send our attention, what it is that we allow our attention to rest on, where where we spend our time noticing. I mean, the, the default wiring in our brain is to notice the stuff that's not going well, right? We have negative bias and that's really important evolutionarily, right? Because it kept us safe. But now, nowadays, our safety is not such an issue. And so we can more safely be more deliberate about sending our attention to noticing things that are, are joyous and that are positive 
rather than allowing the default wiring of our brain to notice what we don't like or what we don't have enough of. Right. And to help our kids, you know, get their brains wired up and calibrated to notice more of what's, you know, good and positive and, you know, just joyous about the world. Yeah. And to be more in the moment. I mean, even as we're having this podcast conversation, like it's so easy for my mind to drift to like, okay, what do I have next? Like, I still have all these things that I didn't get to today. But just to like make a practice of bringing yourself back to the moment and connecting with the people that you're with or or the meaning of the task that you're working on, in part because it's more effective, but in part because it's just more enjoyable. Like if I miss out on this opportunity to connect, which is a really amazing opportunity. I mean, Chris, you're on the West Coast of the United States. Emma, you're in Singapore. It's like, how wild is that? How cool is that, that we're meeting and we're having a meeting of the minds across all these time zones and across the globe? I could totally miss it if I didn't have a practice of coming back to the moment and, and really sinking myself into savoring what is right in front of me, like where I'm at. Because again, the mind just wants to go forward mm-hmm. and figure out what's next, anticipate, anticipate, anticipate. But through these deliberate practices and being more present, you get to be more effective, but you also get to enjoy the journey so much more. Mm-hmm. Well, Emma knows quite well, and anybody who listens to this podcast has found out by now that I love quotes. One of my favorites that I've often told parents over the years is from Albert Camus, French philosopher, who said, true generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present. Mm, and I so- love that. So many parents are like time traveling out, you know, what's this going to be like when he's 15 or how, how is he ever going to get into, you know, university? And it's like, he's sick. (laughs) What's going on right now? And then if we take care of that, and then we take care of that, we take care of that, you know, the future will be what it is. But yeah, bringing people back to those, you know, what's going on right now, being mindful of it, noticing what's important context sensitivity, as we sometimes talk about in acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, and then, you know, taking the next step. And that could be pivoting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be pivoting or or it could be, you know, continuing on in the same, mm-hmm. you know, way that you were before. But as, you know, so long as you can be connected to the present to allow for whatever discomfort might arise and let values help you to make that choice about staying with what you're doing or, or, or moving to something else, you know, you can feel pretty proud of yourself for doing that. Yeah. And that's basically the definition of psychological flexibility. Absolutely. I wonder if I can talk about another sort of dirty little secret for me when reading the book and was this idea that we can get rest from parenting by working. I read that part and I was like, yes, that's exactly how it can feel and that that's okay. And it feels like a dirty little secret because for me, I feel like I should be always really happy as a parent and this is like the best thing that's ever happened. But the truth is that being able to work gives me lots of joy. And sometimes going off to work and leaving children who are really unhappy also gives me lots of joy. You know, being able to put that behind me and turn to sort of, you know, individuals that might be grateful for what I'm doing at that moment and might actually appreciate me, does give me rest. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so I thought that was such an important part to really sort of accept and be open about that truth, that really being able to have different roles 
and to enjoy different roles and to sometimes enjoy one more than the other for perhaps a long period of time, not just a moment, you know, there could be a period of time of our lives as parents that is really, really hard and that actually we're not really enjoying it and that, you know, working or doing another role might be more enjoyable and then that that's okay and that we can rest from our various roles in that way. That was, yeah, that was very validating for me. Parenting is so depleting and we can't possibly expect our children to replenish us because it's not a two-way street. And, and, and if people don't have other sources of, you know, getting filled up and, and affirmed and, and, you know, all that sort of thing, they're in, they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And it is this dirty little secret. There is this sense, this myth that we should love parenting, that we should find all the moments, you know, so special. I remember, you know, being in a doctor's office with my tiny little child being so sleep deprived. And some woman with an older child said, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. It only gets harder. And I was like, I'm, I'm really tired and like feeling a lot of pain right now. So it was not the way I wanted to hear. And at the same time, I mean, I really loved, you know, many parts of, you know, each of the phases of childhood, but there were really difficult challenges in each part as well. And I think we need to make space for the fact that some phases of raising children are, are just really unpleasant for some parents. Like I know so many parents that really just hate the newborn phase. They find so little interaction. Your children don't really have a personality yet. They're just taking from you your sleep schedule is not your own. The feeding schedule is not your own. You have no break. It is really, really hard. And what I like to remind people is that we're actually not engineered. Humans are not wired to raise children alone or without break. So if you're not having an easy time of it, it's not because you're doing something wrong or because you're a bad parent. It's because you're a human parent and human parents need breaks. And there's this term that anthropologists have called alloparenting. And it basically describes how humans are wired to rear collectively, right? We, because raising human children is so, as Chris used the exact right word for it, it's depleting. It's really exhausting. And that's okay because we're not meant to do it alone. Somehow we've landed in a, a phase of culture that it is in, in many parts of the world expected that we do do it alone. But that's not actually how we're intended to do it. We're intended to do it in these close-knit villages where we have you know, extended family supporting us so that we can have a break, so that somebody can teach us how to nurse, so that somebody can take care of our children while we go off and do work. And that's actually the way that we do it best. And to Emma's point, it is really, really true that having another role to step into, even if it's another demanding role, and this is, here the science is very interesting. So you can have a very demanding work life outside of your parenting role life and find a break from parenting when you step fully from parenting into work life. And my favorite study to cite that really, I think, brings this idea to light is the study about following Israeli reservists, where researchers collected data from a set of employees at one company. Half of them were Israeli reservists. And during the course of the study, the reservists were called into active duty while the folks who weren't on reserve duty stayed at their normal job. So you had half of the, these workers, these participants going off to war, like literally going off to war, and half that stayed working their normal job. And what they found was the folks who went into 
active war had less work burnout than those that stayed at their normal job. So it wasn't that they went and did something easier that helped them to reduce their work burnout. They stepped into another very taxing role. But what they did was they fully stepped away from a different role, their work, that was incredibly demanding. And I think that helps us as parents to recognize that it is important to step into something different. And it's okay if it's another something that is demanding because, you know, the thing that always used to make my blood boil when my kids were really tiny was somebody saying, you know, you should just get away and, you know, unplug from everything. And it just wasn't possible for me, given that we don't have family nearby and given that I have a job that has demands and a partner who has a job with many demands and three little kids who count on me. But it's helpful to recognize that you can get a break using your multiple roles, that you can go to work and feel feel rightfully like that is a time that you can unhook from worrying about your kids, knowing that they're being cared for by somebody else that is not you, and that you can allow your parenting self to take a break. And that's okay. And, it, you know, the dirty little secret is it, there's a few of them. One is that you can get a break by stepping from one demanding role into another and that it's okay to want a break, even if you love your kids, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay and normal as human. Well, yeah, self-care. I mean, that's the whole topic. I was just thinking you have this fabulous session, Too Long Didn't Wait, at the end, TLDRs. I love them. And mm. so I was thinking, what's our TLDR? Here, obviously, we it's not about reading, it's actually about listening. But what are the TLDRs from this conversation? You know, what are the takeaways that working parents or not even working parents? I mean, we haven't talked about, you know, those who don't work and how they have their own set of complexities. They need a break too. <laughs> I yeah. always think that, you know, the the people who like for me, work was a really convenient reason to get a break Mm -hmm. from parenting. I think for stay-at-home parents who don't have a more traditional job outside of the home, it's even harder. And I think we need to give permission for all parents to get a break because the people who don't have a convenient excuse like work have an even harder time getting a break. And it's important because parenting is so depleting. And I think that's true of any demanding role that we have. You know, we need to recognize that we need a break. But if I had a TLDR, you know, for this episode, it would be, you know, maybe more general than that, which is, you know, the the dirty little secret that I am really committed to sharing is that, you know, our roles do conflict, but they also can help each other out. And by shifting our mindset to find ways that they enrich each other, that they foster healthiness in each other, that we can access more of the good stuff and help manage the parts that are hard a little bit more effectively. And that isn't just pie-in-the-sky ideals or, posi- you know, toxic positivity. It's, it's really a science-backed truth that we can access through these tools from social science that are really, really helpful. And that, you know, when we feel guilty because, you know, we're dropping the ball, that we can make space for that and, and we don't sort of have to buy into it. We can actually look for ways even that that kind of discomfort can help us out, can help us learn what's important to us, what we can let go of and learn to sort of navigate the, you know, a messy, rich life with a little bit more joy and a little bit more self-compassion along the way. Wonderful. Yes, that was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Elle, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a privilege and a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And 
an incredibly validating book that I would recommend for every working parent out there. Really fantastic oh, read. It is. You. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was such an honor to be on your podcast and such a great resource for, for listeners. And I am just really honored to have been a part of it. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.